there was a language instructor. Um, she was teaching an adult language class and was explaining to her class that Latin or French nouns, unlike in English, are grammatically designated as masculine or feminine. Things like chalk or pencil have a gender association, although in English these words are all neuter. Puzzled, one student raised his hand and asked a very 21st century question, what gender is computer? And the uh, teacher didn't know, but thinking on her feet and, and using this as a teaching opportunity, she took the opportunity to divide the class into two groups, all the men on one side, all the women on the other, and asked them to decide, a little project, decide if the term computer should be masculine or feminine, and both groups were asked to give four reasons for their recommendation. Well, after deliberating, the group of men decided computers should be referred to in the feminine gender because, one, no one but their creator understands their internal logic. <laughs> Two, the native... You see where this is going. Two, the native language they use to communicate with other computers is incomprehensible to everyone else. Three, as soon as you make a commitment to one, you find yourself spending half your paycheck on accessories for it. That's not fair, is it, ladies? For almost all of you, that's not fair. Four, even your smallest mistakes are stored in long-term memory for later retrieval. Am I right, gentlemen? Okay. Okay, the group of women, on the other hand, concluded that computers should definitely be referred to in the masculine gender for the following four reasons. One, they store a lot of data but are still clueless. Two, they are supposed to help you solve your problems, but half the time they are the problem. Three, as soon as you commit to one, you realize that if you had waited a little longer, you could have had a better model. <clears throat> and four, in order to get anything out of them, you have to turn them on. What? That's inappropriate. Come on. Now, look, I'm, I'm saying some distinctions between men and women, and they're funny, and yes, some of them are quite cliche. But I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where we have been working our way through a letter to a first century church in a city called Corinth, and we have just been looking at if, issue after issue after issue that they had in their church. And these, these causes for factions and divisions were, were happening, and now we come across one in our text this morning, where Paul is speaking to some distinctions that are to be made between men and women in the church gathering. The distinction to be made centers primarily around, just to make it a little more complicated, head coverings. So we're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. As I read, you pray for me. Okay, that's how this is going to go. Now... I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. 
But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord... Woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice nor do the churches of God. We have a practice here at our church where we tend to go through books of the Bible. We spent the better parts of four years going through the Gospel of John. And as I was preparing for us to go through the letter of 1 Corinthians, seeing all sorts of, of, of issues that plagued this first century church and seeing so many parallel challenges that exist in our 21st century church, I thought, oh, this will be great. And then as I began to unpack the sermons and the weeks and recognize that 1 Corinthians 11 is one of the challenges that existed in their church and therefore is one for us to be addressed, I, I questioned my career, is what I did. <laughs> questioned my call. <laughs> so I, I want you to hear from me, like, I, 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 this is not a hobby horse, it's actually quite the opposite. I, I find something in Scripture that in some ways troubles me, and yet I, I have to be a student of the Word, and I have to come under it, and I have to strive to understand what it's saying, and I have to proclaim that, and then you are forced, as, as people who believe the Word of God, to, to say, what am I going to do with this text, because it's saying something, and, and that's where we land. That's our habit here, is we often find that our ways are not God's ways, his ways are different than ours, meaning that he, at, in certain instances, actually has plans that are in no way the kinds of plans we would forge. This is very much one of those, very much one of those. And so I have two pleas. I want to, I want to make a plea to you. I'm going to make two. The first is I ask for your mind this morning. This is considered by many to be the most difficult passage of Scripture in the entire New Testament because it's difficult to understand it's complex. There are so many questions around so many verses and so many words. So we have a lot of studying to do this morning, and, and really the majority of my sermon is going to be, feel more like theology class because we have to do the work before we can try and make any sorts of applications to our lives. So it's almost all class, and at the very, very end, when we're out of time, we'll be like, okay, this is how it applies. That's how it'll work this morning. And so I ask for your mind that you would engage the second thing I ask for is your charity. This is considered by many, like I said, to be the most difficult passage of Scripture in the entire New Testament, not only because it's difficult to understand, but also because it's contentious. And I need you to hear this. There are Jesus-loving, Bible-engaging, Bible-believing Christians who disagree on this text and its outworking. All of Jesus, all believe the Bible, who disagree. And so what I'm asking for you this morning is charity. I really don't think it's a reason to break fellowship if we disagree on this. 
but instead to be charitable and gracious towards one another. So the opportunity you are afforded is to think of all the one another commands in the New Testament. Love one another, encourage one another, edify one another, be hospitable to one another, and be really Christ-like in, in exhibiting those things as you're like, you, I don't like what you said, okay? And I invite you to take that posture of charity with you to life group this week for the sake of your life group leaders, all right? And the group, that would be great. Let me pray. I need it. We need it. And then we'll get into it. Jesus, I really do pray just that, 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 that you would help us engage our minds this morning. You've given us minds. You've given us thinking. You've, 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 you help us to, to come to understanding. And Lord, we just pray for your mercy around that. Help us engage our minds this morning. But just as much, if not more, I, just, I ask that you would engage our hearts this morning. That, that, that we would be tender towards one another. Jesus, more than anything, that we would be tender towards you and your word and, and come to sit under it for what it says. So give us clarity and, and give us humility. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's the roadmap for us this morning. We're going to look at the meaning of head, this, this word in verse 3, the meaning of head coverings, because it seems to be what a lot of the text this morning is talking about. Then we're going to look at the cultural meaning, what it meant then, and then we're going to look at the timeless meaning, what it means now and for all time. So first, the meaning of head, the most crucial interpretive question in this passage is what Paul means by the word head. I'll read verse 3 to you again. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. What does that mean? Well, the debated issue between man and woman or husband and wife is set between two undebated issues, the relationship of Christ over man and of the Father over the Son. And so when it comes to this word head, there are really two dominant views. It has to do with a Greek word, kephele, which, which either means, is interpreted as authority, head meaning authority, or head meaning source, as in origin. Okay? These are the dominant two views on what this word means, and really it's the crux of, of how everything else flows. So we need to get this right. Now, there are a number of things that tell us that head doesn't mean source. There are a number of things, but for the sake of time, I'll share two with you. The first is, that Paul, is in regards to Paul's use of the word elsewhere. This is really important. How does he use it in his other letters? How does he use this word head in other places, and what does it infer? Well, in these places, it means authority over or leader, as in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. It says, The Father seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Now, Paul's message in this isn't that Jesus is the source of demons and other things, but that he's in a position of authority over them, and that everything will ultimately be subjected to the authority and control of Jesus. Likewise, in Ephesians chapter 5, with the use of kephele, head, on the same topic, a basic topic about men and women, like we have here this morning, Paul writes, the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. And then in the next verse, verse 24, Paul calls on women to submit to their husbands, which fits naturally with head meaning authority. Okay, so that's the first reason, Paul's use of the word head and it meaning authority in other places. 
The second reason why source doesn't really make sense here is because of the theological problems translating head as source creates. Let me replace the word head with source and see if you catch the theological problems. I want you to understand that the source of every man is Christ. The source of a wife is her husband, and the source of Christ is God. Any problems with that? Well, first, in what sense is a husband the source, the origin of his wife? But the theological issue is this. Is Paul wanting us to understand that Christ was physically created from a piece taken out of God? Certainly not. Does he mean that Christ didn't exist before being sourced out of the Godhead? Definitely not. Now we're toying with Arianism, an ancient heresy that that the Son was created. Does he mean in any sense that the Father was the creator of the Son? And the answer to that according to Scripture, is absolutely not. Because the Bible teaches us that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are co-equal, co-eternal, one in essence, and distinguishable by their unique characteristics of their roles within the Trinity. But when it is translated the way it has historically been understood, not as source or origin, but as headship or authority, using the word head to talk about order and authority in relationships, then it is quite straightforward. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, meaning that the authority over every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, meaning in the home, Christ is the head over all husbands, and they are to model their behavior after his. In the church, Christ is the head over all the elders, and they are to model after Christ who has the authority over them. And the head of Christ is God, meaning the authority over Christ is God. So if we're going to understand that this word head means authority, then we have to say that the husband is the authority of the wife. If you're anything like nearly everybody in the West, alarm bells are going off in your mind right now. Many of them, for many reasons, and for the sake of time, I'll give you two. Because of the patriarchal, hierarchical abuses of such a conclusion, what the Bible says, I have authority over you. What? Because of the patriarchal, hierarchical abuses that we are aware of have happened Right, This worry that believing what the Bible is saying here is actually damaging and dangerous to women. That's an alarm bell that's going off. Is the Bible really saying this? And if it is, isn't this terrible? And I want to respond to that in a few ways. The first way I want to respond to that is yes, to have the alarm bells go off because any sort of authority in a marriage has been wielded over someone and has caused damage, harm, abuse, it's awful. It's terrible. It should not be. It is not being advocated for here, and yet it has been wielded as a weapon in the past and in the present. And we have to acknowledge that and say that is despicable and wrong. I also want to respond by saying I want no part of that, that chauvinism, that hierarchalism. I want no part in that. If you know me and you know my wife, you know my wife is tenacious and strong and the mover and shaker of our household, and I love that and celebrate that, and I'm quite content to kind of be in her shadow, okay? 
And so I, I want you to hear that I want no part of some sort of chauvinism putting women down. That is not being preached. That will not be preached from this pulpit. And the recognition that nearly, it's nearly impossible to view this idea of authority in a home, in a marriage, through any lens but the lens of personal or cultural experience, right? I mean, we're hearing this and we're thinking about either what we've experienced that is wrong in our lives or that we're just culturally aware of that's systemic, like the Me Too movement is happening for a reason because people in power who have had authority, specifically men, have abused that power and by abusing that power, I mean abused women. And that's wrong. What I would also say in response is where the model has been tampered with and twisted, which is what we're talking about here, it isn't grounds for getting rid of the model, but for reformation. So where a text is problematic and causes issue and we go, I don't know how we can work that out, let's throw it away. That's, that's never been the Christian answer. Christianity is about transformation. Christianity is about redemption. Christianity is about taking broken things and making them right, not disregarding them in mass. As followers of Jesus, we're to hear the word and do what it says. And so I'm, I'm with you. There are men who have abused texts like this and need to be called out, and that's not doing what the word says. Another alarm bell that goes off in our minds is that for two people to be equal, they must do the same thing. They must be able to do all the same things. If a man, in other words, is in authority over a woman, then the woman must be inferior, we infer. This is a, this is a common kind of what I would actually call a straw man argument that we, we assume this must be, but it's not true. Paul gives us the perfect example in our text of why it isn't true. Because of the relationship between Jesus the Son and God the Father, this shows us that this reasoning is flawed, that there's, there's sameness and equality even alongside hierarchy and authority. See, Paul's analogy for head about the Godhead and authority is brilliant. It makes it clear that there is an authority and a willful submission. So we would not or shouldn't dare say that Jesus is inferior to God the Father. And because we would never say that, we can't let ourselves say that about men and women, husbands and wives, leaders in the church and the congregation in general. Do you follow, follow that? It's really important. Second, we're trying to define the meaning of head, and I'm really boiling this stuff down, and we're still only going to get you home at dinner, okay? This is, but I'm committed to that. Okay, here's the second, the meaning of head coverings, because that's what a lot of the text is about. Okay, I get the authority piece, but why are they wearing hats? What's going on? So reading the text, the key theme seems to be about head coverings. And Paul says that men's heads shouldn't be covered and women's heads should be covered. Now, there's some debate about whether the covering was simply long hair gathered up on a woman's head or was an actual, like, that, that, would, that would form sort of a covering, right? The nature's covering, long hair 
kind of gathered up on the head to be a covering, or it was literally some sort of a shawl. And in all likelihood, Paul is referring to a physical head covering of some sort. Maybe the the easiest picture we could give for what we're talking about is if a bride comes down the aisle with the veil on, but then the veil is pulled back, not covering her face, but simply a veil over her hair. That's probably the clearest picture of in the first century what the standard was broadly in the Greco-Roman world. That's what's being talked about here. It's no burqa, right? None of that. It's no hijab. It's, it's, it's simply some sort of uh, shawl over the hair. Um, also culturally, unmarried women didn't wear head coverings. So young, unmarried women, widows didn't wear head coverings. Um, also, to wear one's hair down and flowing was, was relatively a, a new thing in the Greco-Roman world. And at the time, was a symbol of a modern affluent and available woman. In fact, sometimes if a woman, woman had her hair hanging long, it, it was a picture of prostitution even in some settings, that, that the hair down inferred, essentially, I'm dressing like a prostitute. In addition, for more clarity, culturally speaking, a shaved head, which Paul talks about, may as well shave your head, was a symbol of a convicted adulteress in Jewish circles. So all of these things are going on. This is ancient head coverings here. What we see is, is Paul is referring to, a, to women who were unnecessarily flaunting their newfound Christian freedom, but missing the mark on that. Because it signaled that they were single, which both dishonored their husbands and God's creative order. It was like throwing off your wedding ring in an obvious way and tossing it away and showing the bare hand. I mean, it's, you can't really show that in a church gathering setting, and so there's no, there's no easy parallel, but that's just the, the best one I can throw out. And we need to see also, just, it's helpful to see what we're talking about with head coverings and, and the circumstances they were in when we look at where we are in this text. Paul spent chapters 8 through 10 talking about Christian freedoms. Pastor Chris Battle last week talked about the fact that, yes, we have rights in Christ, but sometimes our rights can be used in a wrong way. And so he was making that point, and that's something of what's going on here. There is a freedom in Christ that can be on display, and yet those rights can sometimes be wrong, and Paul's calling that here because he's also opening up chapters 11 through 14, which are all about orderly worship. All of the chapters to come here in the next number of weeks, the next number of chapters in the letter, have to do with orderly worship. And so what we've discovered so far is that head means authority, and head covering is a symbol, was a symbol of authority at that time. Now, just to make it really, really clear that Paul's making this point, there's, he actually has six indications, six reasons for head coverings that he gives in the text. I was actually really helped by a, a couple of female theologians that are brilliant on this. One is an Australian named Claire Smith, and one is Mary Cassian, where they dissect all the reasons why Paul is advocating for head coverings in this text. The first reason is the Godhead, which I already spoke to. The fact that Paul is speaking to this order resembling, it's meant to be in a beautiful way, the Godhead itself. Paul wanted men and women to look different because by doing so, they reflected the ordered relationships that God created for them, which in turn reflect the relationships of the Godhead. So the reason why Paul didn't want men's heads covered 
what he's, he, in, in this regard, in terms of Godhead, is because at that time, the, the Roman emperor would cover his head with a toga and make decrees, and it was very kind of self-aggrandizing. And so in a lot of these cities now, men would show up into public gatherings, and they would put the toga on their heads, and it was like this attention on self of, I'm important. And, and what's, what's happening here is Paul is like, no, your head is Christ. Keep your head bear. Don't dishonor Jesus. Don't make much of yourself. Make much of Christ. And so they are to, to act like men in that setting. Likewise, when a married woman didn't cover her head, in that cultural setting, she brought shame on her literal and metaphorical heads. She brought shame on herself and she brought shame on her husband because she was in effect denying her relational responsibilities as a wife. So what Paul's after is for their dress and behavior to be consistent with their roles and responsibilities within marriage and to be content with the ordered pattern of relationships that God ordained and reflect the relations of the Godhead. Men, I want you to act and look like men. Women, I want you to act and look like women. And as you do that, in a way, in, as my created order designed, you will look something, you will reveal something, you will relate more clearly as the Godhead and as I intended in creation, which leads to the second one about creation. It says in verse 7, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is what I like to call a minefield of political incorrectness. We have to do a little bit more work. <clears throat> Paul is referring here to Genesis 2 where man is created first and then woman. He was born with all the responsibilities required of the firstborn in ancient culture. And she was made to help him in those responsibilities. It's really, really clear in Genesis 2, a helper fit for him, fit for the task that God had given him so that together they could accomplish it. So Genesis 2 points out that woman was created to accompany the man in order to be a helper for him. So here's what the verse seems to be saying. If woman was created for man's sake, what that's meaning is to help him in the tasks God gave him, then it follows that woman should honor man. The man honors God by being properly submitted to him, while the woman honors God by being properly submitted to her husband. And Paul is tracing this back to created order. Third, angels, right? Because that makes, that's just clear. That is why, verse 10, a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels, right? Okay, four, you get it. No. <laughs> so back in Luke chapter 15, uh, this fascinating parable Jesus tells where there's this woman who's lost a coin and when she finds it, she invites people to celebrate with her that she found what was lost. And Jesus is like, it's like the same in the heavens. It's like angels are rejoicing when a lost one, a soul is found. When someone comes to Christ, what a picture. The heavens, the angels are in celebration. Like that's happening. We don't get a lot on the angels. Like we don't get a lot. And so it's like we don't know a lot. But what this text seems to be saying is something along the lines of in the angelic realm, something's happening as, as, as God is being honored rightly and there's orderly worship in the gatherings. It's sort of this idea of a head covering on a wife's head was a symbol of authority, her husband's authority, and the angels who seem to be present in this gathering, perhaps assisting in worship, what a, what a concept, desire to see the order of creation maintained. They know God's intentions from the heavenlies. They, they are familiar with God and His ways. 
And when the created order is honored in a church that gathered, right, it brings the order that, 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 that pleases even the angels because they know that it pleases God. That's my best crack. Let's move on. Number four, nature. I'm going to paraphrase verses 14 and 15. Nature itself teaches that men and women ought to do different things with their hair. It's interesting. He says nature, right? Nature tells us this. Nature teaches that men shouldn't have long hair. And you're like, wait, like nature kind of teaches that men and women could both let their hair grow and that would be nature taking its course. In fact, men would outgrow the women because it's coming out of our faces and men are generally hairy. Like we'd win that nature growing hair thing, right? So how does nature teach that? And then you talk about Romans chapter 1 where Paul uses the same word nature as an innate God-given sense of what God requires. And so we're like, okay, if hair can grow long, like it, you seem to be talking about something cultural, not simply nature. And I think that there's a blending of the two happening. His point seems to be that people intuitively know men and women are different and therefore should look different. And those differences have their foundation in the created order. And culture to culture, like the dif what differentiates is going to be quite different in different places. And yet there's this innate, intuitive from nature, knowledge that men and women are different. And like in the first century, the men had short hair and the women had long hair. In the 21st century, most of the men in the room have short hair to no hair. Sorry, brothers. To, to, and then a lot of the women have longer hair than the men they're sitting around. So there's something to be said about that. Kind of like adults' intuitive knowledge that they should look out for children. Just know this. So that he's, speak, he's speaking to nature as a reason here. Fifth, because of tradition. Now, in the New Testament, this is verse 2, the word traditions is sort of a handle for the body of teaching that is the Christian faith. And so this is part of that teaching, Paul's saying, passed down by the apostles to the church and defining true Christianity. This is among the commands to be obeyed. This is in the conversation of the traditions I'm handing down of what it means to be faithful Christians. So he's appealing to tradition. And finally, he's appealing to their practice. Verse 16, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. In other words, what Paul's saying is that this text isn't up for debate because it's common practice in all the churches and there's no other way of doing things. He's insisting they remain in fellowship with all the other churches by doing what they all did in maintaining God-given responsibilities and distinctions between the sexes. So the main point of this text seems to be the claim that what someone does or doesn't put on their physical head either honors or dishonors their spiritual head. Does anybody's head hurt? Okay. Okay. But what does this mean for us today, right? I don't see a lot of head coverings, ladies. I can't believe I just said that. <laughs> oh, boy. We start to talk about men and women and gender and all of that stuff, and a line that often gets used is, well, we don't wear head coverings anymore, right? Meaning this text doesn't make sense anymore. It's cultural. Sister, don't, you don't need to do that. <laughs> You're free in Christ. Let me go on. See, here's the thing. We have to do a little bit of exegesis here. We have to do a little bit of study. We have to do some biblical interpretation because cultural truth is for certain people at certain times, but not for all people at all times. 
And those are all over the scriptures. We see those in a number of places. And yet there's always, in those same texts, the timeless normative truth that's for the whole church for all time. So what do we do with this? Head coverings are, are, are cultural, and so we do away with them, and, and this text means nothing? Or, okay, let's first look at the cultural meaning it had. The short answer is that the head coverings were cultural for certain people at certain times. And so therefore, we don't need to have women in our church wearing head coverings. It was cultural. Jesus, in John chapter 13, on his way to the cross, he's in the upper room with his disciples, and he washes their feet. And then he says in John 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. This is an imperative from Jesus. Wash each other's feet, people. Do you wash each other's feet? Like Jesus, the word, these are the words of Jesus. He's giving you an imperative. Wash each other's feet. He tells us to keep taking the communion meal together. We do that. He tells us to baptize, be baptized. We do that. He tells us to go in the Great Commission. We do that. Why don't we wash each other's feet? You ever been in like some sort of worship service where they, you end up washing each other's feet? And you're like, really? Are we doing this? Like, are, really? Are we doing I have, to, I have to wash that guy's feet? You know, that kind of thing. It's just sort of awkward for us, isn't it? But Jesus is telling us to do it. So what do we do with that? Well, I would say we don't wash each other's feet because it's cultural. That time, that place. Washing feet made sense in a culture where people wore sandals and walked long distances. It was customary for someone to arrive at a destination and be greeted at the door by a slave who would wash their feet. We drive almost everywhere. And when we get to our friend's house, we're not greeted at the door by a slave offering to wash our feet. So what's happening in this text? What do we do with it? Well, there's a cultural form, foot washing. But there's a timeless truth that Jesus is conveying. Serve one another. Just as I have done for you, you are to do for one another. Yes, I'm the leader, sure, yes. But I got down and washed your feet. Do it likewise to one another. Be servants to one another. Cultural form, foot washing. Timeless principle, serve one another. At the end of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 16, it says, greet each other with a holy kiss. Now, if you're new to church or don't know your Bibles, like, we don't do this, okay? We don't do this anymore. We don't greet with holy kisses, and yet we're told in the Scriptures, greet one another with a holy kiss. The cultural form is holy kiss. The timeless truth is be warm, tender, gentle, kind, and affectionate towards brothers and sisters in Christ. That's timeless. That doesn't end, okay? Cultural form, timeless truth, principle. So getting back to head coverings, head coverings are irrelevant because they don't have the same meaning today. Lack of head coverings sends virtually no sexual or religious messages to our society today that make sense to them. <gasps> She's not wearing a head covering. She's not under authority of her husband. No one in society is going to think that. What was worn on women's heads would not communicate in our culture what it conveyed in first century Corinth. And therefore, it's just, it doesn't it's not timeless. It's time-sensitive, and we've done away with that. But we haven't done away with the timeless truth. See, underneath even the time-sensitive, well, that's, that was for that time. There is always, always a timeless principle that exists. So what is that here? This is where we're going to end. The timeless meaning. I want to remind us, I'm going to get us to lean in here. Our primary goal 
as followers of Jesus is to find out what the Bible's actually saying and to humble ourselves enough to consider that God's Word will often challenge us to change our preconceived ideas and align them with the Bible, right? We know this. If you've read the Bible long enough, you read something, you're like, really? This is what God says? This is not at all what I was thinking. His ways aren't our way, that kind of stuff. Okay, so with that in mind... How does this text about head coverings apply to us today if we don't even need to wear head coverings anymore, any of us? Well, the way we conduct ourselves in church should uphold the two timeless truths that seem to be actually quite clear in this text. And they are this, equality and distinction. These are the timeless truths in the text, equality and distinction. Let me show you equality in the text. We've showed so much about distinction, and women are to do this and to that, and I know that feels heavy and oppressive, but we've skipped over some really beautiful statements. In in verse 4, it says, men are to pray and to prophesy with their heads uncovered. And then it says that, you know, women, when they pray or prophesy, aren't to cover their heads. But what he's saying, or are to cover their heads, and so what he's saying, his issue is that they weren't covering their heads. His issue is not that the women in the public gathering, the church gathering, were praying and prophesying. Do you see the beautiful equality that exists in the gospel, in the Christian church? That was revolutionary in the first century. It's normative for us, but revolutionary in the first century, we're all equals. In the public gathering, men, women alike, praying and prophesying leading worship, public prayers, sharing testimony, serving in various ministries. There is this beautiful equality in the text. And so what's happened, unfortunately, is that, yes, people have seen in the text, oh, there's a distinction here. There's something men are supposed to do and something women aren't supposed to do. And in getting nervous about what women aren't supposed to do, they don't let women do anything in the church. They can't be ushers, can't serve communion, can't lead worship, can't read the Scripture or pray. And you're like, what? This text won't allow us to do that. There is a beautiful, stunning equality here. Likewise, in verses 11 and 12, I think in, in, in contrast, pushing back on, on that male chauvinist who might hear that, oh, a husband has authority over his wife, Paul's pushing back, anticipating that, saying in verse 11, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman, for as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. Yes, okay, the first woman was created out of Adam, but every man since has been born of woman. Don't you see how interconnected, interwoven, how interdependent we are, how beautiful the equality and dignity and worth of of men and women are, Jen Wilkin wrote, we are, speaking of women in the church, possessors of every capacity you men lack. What a statement. We women are the possessors of every capacity you men lack. Oh, are you ever, sisters? And we are all the celebrators of every capacity you possess. Oh, it's a godly woman. You lack some things, men. We possess those things. And we need to flourish and thrive and use those gifts and be visible in the church using those gifts and serving in ministry and all of those things. Yes. And those gifts that you possess, those those callings on you, those capacities for you, we celebrate those in you because there's this interconnectedness of need for each other 
There's a beautiful equality, which, and men and women in the home, in the church, they all flourish when we complement one another and see it that way in this beautiful equality. And yet it does not erase distinction at the same time. That is why the primary analogy of the father having authority over the son is so helpful. There's equality in the Trinity, and yet there's role distinction. And Paul wants us to see that that does exist in the home and in the church. So how does this work out in our marriages? See, this is a challenge in our time to call husbands or men to something in particular and wives or women in general to something in particular as if there's distinction. That, like, many of us, right, we've kind of drunk the cultural Kool-Aid here. You can't say that. You can't say something just to women that, 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 that men can't do or you can't say something to men that, that women can't do or isn't for them, right? We want, we want that to be fluid in the sense of we want, we want equality to equal sameness across the board, no distinction, and yet this Scripture and others won't let us do that. So what is this distinction in marriage supposed to look like, especially as we talk about head, meaning headship in the home? Well, for husbands and wives, as we try and work this out, man, we fumble the ball a lot, don't we? There's the error of passivity and there's the error of aggressiveness. The error of passivity is where a husband is essentially a wimp, where the wife is essentially a doormat, And then there's the error of aggressiveness where the husband is essentially a tyrant or where the wife is essentially a a usurper or a supplanter or an overrider. But the biblical ideal of equality with distinctives is for loving, humble headship for husbands and joyful, intelligent submission for wives. If you're married, what are the sinful tendencies of you and your spouse? Errors of passivity or errors of aggressiveness? How does this look on the ground? I have a lot of admiration for Tim and Kathy Keller. They planted uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, I think in the late 80s. And since then, that church has just had a massive impact on Manhattan and New York City. Um, they've planted over 300 churches, and she writes in a book on, on gender and ministry, Kathy Keller, she writes, in the late 1980s, our family was comfortably situated in a very livable suburb of Philadelphia, where Tim held a full-time position as a professor. Then he got an offer to move to New York City to plant a new church. He was excited by the idea, but I was appalled. Raising our three wild boys in Manhattan was unthinkable. Not only that, but almost no one who knew anything about Manhattan thought the project would be successful. I also knew that this would not be something that Tim would be able to do as a nine-to-five job. It would absorb the whole family and nearly all of our time. It was clear to me that Tim wanted to take the call, but I had serious doubts that it was the right choice. I expressed my strong doubts to Tim, who responded, Well, if you don't want to go, then we won't go. However, I replied, Oh, no, you don't. You aren't putting this decision on me. That's abdication. If you think this is the right thing to do, then exercise your leadership and make the choice. It's your job to break this logjam. It's my job to wrestle with God until I can joyfully support your call. Tim made the decision, she goes on to say, 
to come to New York City and plant Redeemer Presbyterian Church. The whole family, my sons included, consider it one of the most truly manly things he ever did because he was quite scared. But he felt a call from God. At that point, Tim and I were both submitting to roles that we were not perfectly comfortable with. But it is clear that God worked in us and through us when we accepted our gender roles as a gift from the designer of our hearts. She goes on, why should women submit at times like these? We must reject the traditionalist answer, namely that women are not decisive enough. The fact is that many wives are more decisive than their husbands, amen? So why are women called to this position? The answer to that question is another question. Why did Christ become the one to give up the authority to the Father? We don't know. But it is a mark of his greatness, not his indecisiveness. Women are called to follow him here. But remember, taking authority properly is just as hard as granting it. Equality distinctions, the distinction being one of authority and one of submission and authority for husbands to see this as, this is hard. I want to honor Christ. I want to honor my wife. I want to honor my family for elders in the church. Be like, I want to honor the church. I want to serve the church. And for wives and for a congregation to be like, I will submit to a loving authority. Both of those are extremely hard. It's a high calling, but it is the calling nonetheless. And what God calls you to and you give yourself to, he will accomplish in you. John Stott wrote, if headship means power in any sense, then it is power to care, not to crush, power to serve, not to dominate, power to facilitate self-fulfillment, not to frustrate or destroy it. And in all this, the standard of the husband's love is to be the cross of Christ on which he surrendered himself even to death in his selfless love for his bride. Owen Strand puts it this way, the gospel is bad news for our stereotypes. It tells us that men are self-sacrificial leaders and that women are fearless followers of Christ. I have a goal every time I preach. I don't know if I hit that goal or not, but my goal every time I preach is to show you the beauty, like the beauty of the gospel. I don't want to just preach against, preach against, preach against. I want to preach for. I want to preach beauty. I want to show you a more stunning reality that exists in God, in His creation, in His mandate, in His call on us that you say, I wish that that was true. I hope that that is true because that is beautiful. And so my struggle all week has been, how do you make headship, how do you make head coverings beautiful? <laughs> like what's, what's beautiful here? And in the minus one minute and 30 seconds I have left, I'd like to tell you. <laughs> it's the use of both the authority and submission of Jesus. If you have any role of authority in this room, any of you, many, right, we all have areas of authority in some ways, where are we supposed to look in how our authority is to be governed? Well, we're to look to Christ. Where are we to look if we are to be in submission, and we're all in submission in, in different ways, in different places, in different circumstances? 
Well, we're to follow the submission of Christ. And that's where the beauty is. This is how Jesus approached authority. Mark 10, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What Jesus is saying, yes, the world sees leadership and authority in one particular way. I'm above you. I'm on top. I can make demands of you and I will get from you. And Jesus is saying, the upside-down kingdom is this. You're in a place of authority. You're the servant of all. Headship isn't up here. Headship's down here. Eldering in the church isn't up here. It's down here. The other night, Emily and I had some neighbor friends over, and he's very successful in business and runs an office with a number of employees. And I was just trying to learn from him. I was like, what do you do to have just really good culture, really good morale around among your staff? And they're not, they're not church folks. And he just looked at me and said, servant leadership. Huh. What, what's created a good culture in his environment is that he has, he has used the model of servant leadership. Well, that comes from Jesus. And the church ought to display it in every sphere that we hold authority. Likewise with submission, Jesus in John 6 said, for I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus came to earth on his rescue mission in submission to the Father's will. But then in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Meaning there's a sense in which Jesus not only did submit in his rescue mission on his way to the cross, but Jesus will submit to God the Father even at the end of time and it will be without compromising his unity and equality with the Father. Christ-like servant leadership, Christ-like submission. This is, this is this, this timeless principle that we get. There's differentiation in this text. It's clear. So what stands? Equality and distinction stand. Headship in the home is a groom laying down his life for his bride. Headship in the church is a shepherd laying down his life for his sheep. Servant leadership. Mark Dever said, the culture may call churches to conform. But God calls us to be holy, set apart, sanctified, distinct. Our distinctness, our holiness is nothing more or less than the character of God displayed in us. We may feel called to conform. The Bible calls us, God calls us to be holy and to be to display his character. I wonder if we have the bravery. I wonder if we have the humility to display the Godhead in these things. Will we allow God's creative order to be on display in our homes and in our church? Because when we do these things, God is glorified and it even seems angels rejoice. Because God's creative intention is honored and his word is submitted to and upheld. May it be so. Let's pray. Jesus.
You are our picture of authority. Oh, would you shape any authority that any of us have into your likeness, your image, Christ's likeness. You show it in your foot washing. You want to lead? You be the servant of all. And Lord, in our submission, we all have roles in which we are called to submit under. May we do it with Christ's likeness who submitted to the will of the Father for the good of others and for your glory. May that be the case in our homes and in our church for the good of the world and your glory. Amen.